the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And welcome to JJ, the JJ Dillon Podcast. I am your co-host, JP John Paz, and with me is the star of the show, two-time Hall of Famer, the leader of the Four Horsemen, the second greatest manager of all time, of course, former WBF and WCW executive, JJ Dillon. JJ, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine. I think you should always qualify that by saying the second greatest manager uh, by his own declaration behind Bobby the Brain Heenan. Yes. Okay. I like that a lot. Now, last week on the show, we talked about your jump to WCW, obviously behind the scenes, uh, late 96 on TV in 97. And before that, you know, you're in the uh, WWF and obviously before that NWA with Crockett. And I think today would be a great episode since it's technically the fourth episode. I think it would be great to talk about the original four horsemen. I think you might be pretty familiar given uh, your history with those guys, right? Yes. Now, there is a great book out there. I know you're very familiar with it by Dick Bourne, of course, midatlanticgateway.com, called The Four Horsemen, A Timeline History. And they have some great, great stuff in there about The Four Horsemen, have some interesting stuff. And, you know, when you think back about The Four Horsemen, you always think of Ole, Tully, Arn, yourself, and Ric Flair as the original. But technically speaking, you weren't actually a part of the original, original grouping, even though you technically are. Am, am I right on that? The That you were just almost a few weeks after that. I think I think initially uh, I only managed or only was associated with Tully Blanchard. Right. And it was almost like Baby Doll was kind of there with Tully and then kind of faded away. And then you entered the fray with Tully Blanchard and Tully Blanchard Enterprises. What was the kind of relationship with you and Tully at this point? I mean, pre-Horseman, as you're joining him, what was the relationship like with Tully? Oh, geez. Tully and I go back uh, um, when he was at West Texas State around the same time as Ted DiBiase, uh, 19, circa 1975. I was uh, still active in my career and... Um, in um, main events uh, in West Texas out of Amarillo. And, of course, uh, uh, we would regularly get to see uh, Ted DiBiase and Tully Blanchard and um, a lot of the the, uh, the guys that uh, came out of uh, West Texas State. So I knew Tully from way back then and, of course, uh, also worked for uh, – 
for his father, Joe Blanchard, uh, in San Antonio. And how would you say the the relationship as far as like chemistry and everything with him? You always got along with him very well. Oh, absolutely. Always, you know, one of my uh, closest friends and somebody who I uh, greatly respect and admire. Is that one of those things where before you're paired up with him, you want to be paired up with him or is just kind of the what Dusty want or whoever's booking at the time? That's what they want. They want to put you guys together. Um, I never, ever felt that I was pushed into any kind of a, a long range, uh, high profile um, relationship with anybody in the business. I, I think if you're going to do something that that's um, that's out there in the public to any degree, it, it's good to have a, a comfort level with the people that you're working with. So it's not like it's something that um, it's just a given that anybody who is doing anything at, at that level makes sure that uh, that there's a, a good, comfortable relationship between the, all the parties involved. And around this time when you were almost going to be managing Tully and just kind of leading up to that, you were actually managing a different nature boy, nature boy, buddy Landell and leading him, leading him to, you know, to try to get to the national title and leading him to start 85. What was it like working with a guy like buddy Landell? You know, he was a guy that anybody that ever met buddy, um, had good things to say about him. He was a very, very likable guy. And, that was the same experience that I had. And, and Buddy, unfortunately, it seemed um, just a lot of times didn't make good decisions with regard to his career. And he, he was his own worst enemy. But as a person and as a professional, uh, I really liked Buddy, enjoyed working with him. And, uh, and really, uh, I mean, just virtually everybody that I ever worked with over any appreciable length of time, uh, you're, you're in this business uh, as anything in life, any kind of adventure, you're, you're, you're always going to be closer to some people than you are at, at, with others. But I always wanted to have a good, um, a good relationship with everybody. Again, r- realizing that you're going to be closer personally with some than others. And it seems like when Buddy was there, had a little bit of a feud with with Ric Flair, the Battle of the Nature Boys, that whole thing. It seems like you were right. He may, he's making some poor decisions. He ends up getting fired, and that's kind of when they put you with Tully. Why? Do you remember why he was fired? Was it something, uh, like you said, he kept making bad decisions. Was there a reason for the firing? Um, I really don't have any strong recollection. Uh, uh, and I, I, I know that he... Uh, suffered a severe injury outside of a sliding glass door at a hotel where there was bad weather and ice and snow or something accumulated and he slipped and um, suffered a pretty significant injury as I remember. It is crazy kind of what leads people to certain things because if he doesn't get fired, if whatever happens with him doesn't happen, you may not end up with the four horsemen you may not end up with tully so they ended up putting you around star k time around that that christmas break time they end up putting you with tully together immediately on tv in greensboro did you sense a uh, connection with uh, tully immediately um you know you're you're kind of bringing back a lot of memories much of which uh 
it, you know, it's great to rekindle these things. Uh, I've interacted with so many people with so many levels over all the years. Uh, uh, a lot of it uh, <laughs> gets lost with the passing of time. But hmm. with, with Tully, he was somebody who, uh, along with Ted DiBiase, uh, around the time, and I was like still active in my career, and in Amarillo, main eventing with uh, with Dick Murdoch and the guys that attended West Texas State um, would always come down to the uh, to the matches at the Amarillo Sports Arena, and that was uh, often the first uh, time I got to know any of these guys uh, on a personal level. Now, with Greensboro, North Carolina, obviously that means that that's just kind of synonymous with with Crockett and promotions and with. NWA, and it was such a big thing. When they put you and Tully together, is there talks at all about creating a group or anything? Because it just seems like everything kind of just happened organically, and it was almost not not like happenstance. Well, I guess it really is happenstance, but it's not really a mistake, but they kind of put you guys together slowly but surely, and obviously you become eventually the executive director with Tully, but then they put you guys all together. Was there anything, any talk before that, like, oh, we need a super group, we need a faction, we need, you know, Dusty to have heels? I mean, was there any talk of any of that? No, it was, as you as you kind of alluded to, it was uh, uh, just something that, uh, that that step-by-step transpired, and it wasn't part of uh, any master plan that, that unfolded. And that, that happens a lot of times uh, uh, in this uh, profession, sometimes so-called great ideas that are thought out and thought are going to just be uh, instant successes for, for some reason fall flat in their face and other things that um, are, are more spontaneous that are a result of a lot of great depth or planning before are the, are the things that, uh, that that are become the biggest and, and most lasting. And that's that's happened a lot of times uh, in the business, and maybe that's part of what makes the world of professional wrestling uh, so intriguing. Absolutely. And I think that in this period of time, there wasn't really that many stables. I mean, there had been stables before, but am I right on that? There was really no prominent stable as far as, I mean, the, the level and the size and just the, the magnitude and, and the heat and everything else of the Four Horsemen. Yeah, Gary Hart had his Hart's Army before that with Pac Song Nam and... But it wasn't really uh, uh, the thing with the horsemen, and uh, was I think there's ne- there's never really a first in wrestling. If you if you're a historian, you can go, somebody can go back and say, well, what about this, and find something in history and say, oh yeah, that's right. And but it was um, certainly impactful in my career. It was uh, a, a point of you know where things are really really. Uh, grew from that point and, and excelled for me. And, and I was dealing with people, you know, guys like Tully and Arn and Barry Windham and Flair. I mean, you know, t- to this point later, we're about 30 some years later, you know, we're all personal friends. Is it crazy in the wrestling business? If you think about it that many years later, not only are you still remembered, remembered fondly, and people still want to meet you and all this other stuff, but the fact that you can still remain friends after that period of time? Yeah, uh, I guess, you know, it, it is unique in many ways, but I will always was lucky that the people, you know, the, there were even times I would hear that uh, there would be tag teams 
often brothers uh, that were successful in the business, but on in, on the personal side, either hated each other, never traveled together, and all you saw was the image uh, of them together on television. And I never uh, never encountered that. I, um, of course, uh, maybe like for me, maybe it's my personality. I'm uh, I'm easygoing, and I, if I find that people are difficult to deal with or their issues uh, before I get deeply involved, I try to subtly uh, distance myself and go off in another direction. And, and I don't like to get uh, ever in a situation where now you're going public and, 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 and saying negative things about other people. Um, I, if I, w- I was always of the opinion that if you don't have something good to say about somebody, then don't say anything at all. And the interesting thing about this group of guys and how they come together, and, and we're kind of saying it's happenstance, but what is, is the story? I mean, you always hear the story of they had so much time and, you know, they're cutting local promos and they just throw everybody together. Obviously, Ole and Arn are together, tag team. You had Flair, who said storyline was their cousins, so you know they kind of grouped them together. Then you and Tully are together, and obviously those three are, are big heels, and you and Tully are, are, are a heel group, and they kind of put you together. So what is the true story? Is it that you guys were cutting some local promos, and Arn you know, comes up with it and just he kind of just says it for Horseman of the Apocalypse and, and just cuts that great promo that we've, we've read so many times? Is that the real true story of, of what happened and how you guys formed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, back in those days, you know, it was before the Internet and cable television. And, you know, a lot of the information, uh, you know, Meltzer's newsletter was uh, circulated, which would give you in the business um, information as to who was doing what in other territories that, uh, you know, you'd read about friends or that you'd work with and they were somewhere else and being successful. And so that weekly newsletter was heavily circulated, uh, you know, behind the scenes. And the, uh, for whatever the reason, the promoters uh, disliked having talent, have information <laughs> and, want, hmm. and know what other people were doing. Uh, and I never really understood, you know, why they all felt so strongly about that. I mean, there were some places that, you know that they said if you were caught reading, you know, the newsletter that you'd be fired. Uh, and I, you know, I never really understood that. And it's crazy. Like as far as, you know, things like that and, and how things get thrown together and, and, you know, how it kind of got out that, you know, Orn is, you know, basically he's a four horse in the apocalypse, but the four horseman moniker definitely wasn't planned from the start. And they always say that, you know, due to, you know, time constraints at a TV taping, whatever, um, they kind of just threw everybody together and said, you're all cutting this promo. Um, you're not necessarily together or, or whatever, but you know, you're all just going to cut a promo and that's how it was born. But it was almost one of those things where it's like, that was actually better than anything you could script. It's almost better to have something like that. Right. Absolutely. Right. And, and at that point, um, the TBS show, if there was not a preemption for baseball or something was a, that was a two-hour show every Saturday, and that was in addition to whatever syndication, uh, at least one if not two syndication shows that maybe you would be doing for Crockett. So there was a lot of television content, and especially with the uh, 
with the TBS show because it was two hours and there were so many breaks in there. And, um, you know, just some guys weren't real good at doing a generic interview to fill, say, a two-minute time slot. And I always had a, a gift of being able to just take some idea, even if it wasn't a hard sell for um, uh, a particular area that we're going or a particular thing. It was a, a good way to mention some of the towns that, that you were appearing in or hope of, hopeful of being appearing in. And it was a good way to uh, kind of introduce other talent that was coming into the picture. But there was a case where Arn came in. Um, I did not know Arn personally before he arrived. And he just, you know, some things magically just happened. And that was one of those things. And Arn just, he he was like, it was destined that he was going to come there and be a part of what we were doing. And he's the one that I, the, that I give credit to doing that interview. And like I say, because we had to fill a lot of two-minute spots where we weren't talking about a specific event coming up or, um, you know, c- kind of just generically talking about towns in an area or talking about talent. And, it, and as my b- recollection is that, uh, and, and what would happen too a lot of times, which says a lot for that group, that everybody was at the top of their game. And it wasn't like somebody was being brought along and gotten the rub from other people that were already there. And so we would often um, do interviews together and and there wasn't, like some some situations uh, with some people, like if you had a two-minute spot to do and there was a tag team or four guys, there were some guys whose feelings would be hurt or he, he maybe even insulted if in that two-minute interview if they didn't have part of it to, to say something. We were all at a level that, that would, we were already there and, and if there was a an interview that uh, – that anybody started with a lot of times it wasn't thought out ahead of time where where you even had you know specific bullet points a lot of it was very spontaneous they were all all good talkers and could carry an interview and if we started with something like with say Arn and all of a sudden Arn's on a roll and and he would carry the whole two minute interview and the important part uh, in that kind of thing is for the people that surround him to be in tune with the interview, even if they were not saying something. In other words, I, I would often use my eyeglasses as a prop. Somebody's saying something, and I mm. kind of move my eyeglasses yep. and cock my head a little bit. There's those little subtle nuances that you're not just standing there like a statue while somebody's doing a promo. And the same thing with uh, being a manager in the corner of an event. You're out there as a catalyst to help get the people to want to come see that event and buy a ticket, but they don't come to want to see you necessarily, but you're there. And so I would sit there and I would consciously watch the match as if I was the fan sitting in the front row and I would sit there and I would look intent. And if uh, my guy did something 
uh, offensive that was, you know, he was taking over in the match. Like, yeah, yeah, boy, I'm drawing a fist. And it's like kind of like a cheerleader. And and if the, the other opponent all of a sudden is getting the best of my guy, he's taking a punch. And I'm, I'm cocking my head and kind of registering with that each punch as if he was hitting me too. And that sounds so subtle, and it is subtle. But it's a nuance that, you know, I would have people um, sitting in front row ringside that first would watch me because a lot of times I would take a chair and sit down and not really do anything. And the people would watch for a while and and wondering what I'm going to do. And a lot of times I, I and there were other people, everybody had their own, uh, own style as a manager. And my feeling was I'm uh, – a means of getting the fans hopefully interested in the match and they tune up and show up and buy a ticket or turn on the TV to watch a match, not necessarily to watch me, but at the same time, I don't sit there kind of like a statue that I'm, I'm involved in the match. If, 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 if they're going to be interested in the match, how can I expect them to be interested if I'm not interested? So I register with my guys I kind of cheer them when they're getting them new and they're getting beaten. And uh, on the receiving end, you know, I'm sitting back in my chair and I'm almost feeling the punches the same as they are. And I think that's important to the fans because it shows that you are genuinely interested and a part of what's going on. It sounds so, so subtle, and but it is. It's, it's, it is subtle, but it's also incredibly important. Another thing you used to do, which was always so great and very subtle, is let's say tell your orange, you know, they're making a really good point. You take off the glasses and then you'd kind of put it in your teeth or, you know, put it in your mouth as if like, wow, they're really making a good point and you're really kind of sinking into it and you're really like listening. Like, and as a fan, you're like, oh, I really got to pay attention. JJ is really focused in on this. I must really have to pay attention to focus in on this. Very subtle, but great. Yeah, it's a thin line because you don't want your facial re- reactions or your responses to whatever they're saying to then be the focal point of attention. Hmm. It, 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 it's, it's, um, I guess one of the reasons that I had significant success because I had a knack of, uh, even if I wasn't conducting the interview or had any important comment to make, if you were watching an interview with somebody who I was managing, especially if it was a minute or two, you never saw me standing there with a blank look on my face like my mind is a thousand miles away somewhere else. Again, how can I expect the fan to tune in and listen to everything that's being said if, I am, if I'm standing there and the manager for somebody and not interested myself? Very important. Right. So when Orange says Four Horsemen Apocalypse, you guys like the Four Horsemen, Oli, Tully, Obviously, it's going to be yourself, Arn, and Flair. Is that something where immediately it like clicks in your head and clicks in all their head? Like, we got something here. This is going to be great. This is awesome. Kind of just said it, and I think that's you know we're going to roll with this, and this is going to be huge. Or was this just another promo, and let's kind of move on to the next one? It was just one of those things that, and that's you know why Arn is a treasure in our business because he always and to this day gives a lot of thought with anything that he's talking about and in that case you know he he you know talked about you know never i almost can memorize the promo where he's saying 
to somebody sitting there, take a look at the screen. He said, look at the, look at the people that are in this screen. And he said, they dominate this profession. And trying to draw a, a, a comparison, I have to go outside the wrestling business and the closest I can come to it is to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and held up the four fingers. It was just a line that I don't know if he gave a lot of thought to that just because uh, some great things came out of him, you know, and maybe we're nodding as he's talking. And it really wasn't until that was like on a Saturday and we had a Greensboro show that night and we go to Greensboro and we're in the, we go in, get into the ring and there was a, a group of guys that were regulars that had the whole front row on the one side. They were kind of heel fans and we looked over and they're looking with a smile on their face and holding up four, four fingers and they're chanting horsemen, horsemen. And, uh, it was a week or two went by and Jimmy Crockett one day says to me, he said, what's this thing about horsemen, horsemen I keep hearing about? I said, well, it's something that Arn just in his, uh, his great mind threw out there and it, it, it struck a note with uh, a, apparently a significant number of the fans because that night when we went to the arena, they were yelling horsemen and holding up the four singles that has become the symbol of excellence. And I said, I think you should pay attention to it because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like this is an idea that we're, how can we market this? How can we sell this? We all have to say this. It wasn't like that. It just was something that Arn said and the fans heard it. And that night, like I said, we went to the arena. You know, a lot, they hear a lot of interviews and a lot of things you say. <laughs> you know, you think, oh, boy, I hope, you know, I hope this is a, a good interview and gets the point across or whatever. And then something as simple as that is what they remember. And they say horsemen and they're holding up and they are the ones that started it and they're the ones that kept it going. Such a great memorable promo. The only time this much havoc has been reached by this few number of people, you need to go all the way back to the full horsemen of the apocalypse. Just such an awesome, memorable quote by Arn. And he's just he's so smart. I don't even know if he realizes how smart he is sometimes with some of these <laughs> awesome quotes. <laughs> he just he's so talented that it just flows from him and the, that faction, if I call it a faction rather than say, well, a team or, or group, we're different. We were different than everybody else. That's why I, I try to latch onto a, a, a word that you, or a term that you don't hear that often, but we were a faction and we were people that each member was already at the top of their game. You know, a lot of times you'll have, you know, three guys and they, which was a, a little bit of a degree when they brought Luger in. Because mm -hmm. yes. yep. Luger was just starting in Florida. He had the body. And uh, he got sideways with Bruiser Brody, if I remember correctly. And he was in a mm -hmm. cage match down there. And, and, and Brody, Brody had a short fuse. And I don't know what Luger did that set him off. But he, he oh boy, it's like it got so bad for Luger that Luger finally climbed out of the cage of his own power, walked straight to the dressing room, grabbed his clothes under his arm and out the back door and was gone. It, it just, <laughs> it, oh boy, 
Bruiser Brody was one of a kind. Well, I have such Frank Goodish. I have such great fond memories of him. He was a, a treasure in our business, and and it was a a sad thing that we we lost you know lost him under the circumstances, and and that so young because God he was uh, he was one of the all time greats. There's no doubt about that. So great. And that's funny because that's how you basically get Luger and then Ole wants to go a separate way. But rewinding yeah. just, just a bit, I definitely want to get to that in a second, but definitely want to touch on Ole because he's one of those guys that, that people are just like, yeah. man, I mean, they either have a strong opinion of him, they hate him, or they have a strong opinion, they love him, that's the way it is. Like if you ask Arn, he thinks Ole's great, loves him, has nothing bad to say about him. Put my, somebody, name on that, put my name on that list too. Oh, okay. I was going to say. I'm a huge, huge Ole fan. Huge Ole fan. How come it's like that, though? They, you, he, you either love him or you absolutely hate him. How come he's like that? Well, I went to Crockett Promotions, I think, in 71. And when I got there, Ole and Gene were the top tag team. And so I was around Ole, and I was, you know, I was a little bit old. I wasn't a kid. Like I say, I was close to my 28th birthday. So uh, I, I got kind of for a young guy coming in kind of got treated a little bit differently than say another young guy that was a lot younger in age. And I, I, I kept my mouth shut and I was like a sponge just wanting to absorb everything that I could take the things that I thought applied to me and just to be informed about everything. So I made a lot of trips with Oli and Oli at that time, boy, he was, he was uh, big into the stock market and he would spend, um, he would spend all kinds of time charting stocks, and 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 he took pride in in wanting to take the money that he made in the business and put it to work for him. And he used to kind of make fun, make not make fun, yeah, make fun of guys who wanted to go out and impress the girls and and spend a lot of money on clothing or buy fancy cars that they really couldn't afford. And I, I call that the myth, like in my book, because their wrestling fans would see you on television and say, oh, wow, you're on TV. You're a huge star. You must be making, you must be a millionaire. You must be making all kinds of money. And a lot of the guys in the wrestling business, mo- most of them just made a living. And a lot of those same guys uh, bought cars fancier than what they could really afford with the money they were making. And because they got wrapped up in what I call the myth was, they were trying to live up to an image of what the fans thought they would be and spent every dollar to do it. And some guys ended up, you know, their career was over and had nothing left to show for it, which was very sad. And with Ole, it seemed like he was kind of against that Ric Flair style and those guys that myth style, you know, we're like, oh, I'm going to spend this amount of money. This Was he completely against the horseman style when you think of the horseman style you know symbol of excellence think of the rolex watches the limousines the jeff you know all that kind of stuff was he against that style well he he was his own uh he used to say he what do you say he was the captain of his own ship i think is what he used to say and he just believed in you you can you can be in this business and have a run and a lot of times there's no guarantee of how long that run's going to last and how big it's going to become. And Ole was somebody who wasn't about dressing to uh, uh, impress other people. He, I remember he had a, I forget what kind of car it was, but I remember it had a convertible top and it had like 200,000 miles on it. And he just, 
he wasn't into having an image of the big fancy car. One, he was about making money in the business and saving every dollar that he could. And he was into to, uh, tracking stocks and trying to take his money and and make it work for him. So uh, I I really liked Ole. Like you said, guys either loved him or hate him, and most of them didn't like Ole because Ole Ole was not a politician. And unlike a lot of guys in the business that would tell somebody what they wanted to hear, Ole didn't sugarcoat anything. He told it like it was. And I, I had no problem with that. And so I became good friends with Ole, and I made a lot of trips with him. A lot of he would be used to travel a lot by himself because guys didn't want to travel with him. If he he would we would ride in a car, and sometimes it'd be a relatively long trip, and he wouldn't be in the mood to talk, and neither would I. And and we would ride a long distance and not say anything, and it wouldn't feel uncomfortable. It just you know that's how it was. And if we got into a conversation about something, you know, Ole would tell you how he felt, and and with him. It was strictly a business. I want to make as much money as I can, and I want to I want to save that money. And 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 he had, God, he had, he had a lot of children that he he had to support uh, and and put towards their future. So, just uh, I have nothing but positive thoughts about Ole. And and again, I had no problem with being around somebody that that told you honestly how they felt and how it was. And I took the business seriously. I didn't, uh, so I could, I could go with Ole and we could really, we could talk about anything. I wasn't really into the stock market like he was, but cause I, I wasn't at the point yet where I had any kind of a pre- appreciable income for the business that I was worrying about how I was going to invest it. But, uh, he just was a, he was a good businessman. And to this day, he's, uh, he's a good friend. The last time I saw him was a couple of years ago, I was, uh, I had gone to my, uh, I had my sister who was, uh, down at the South Carolina beach or something. And I was going down to, uh, Atlanta to see one of my other children driving down. And so I, I went to visit my sister on the beach. And then as I was driving across to go to Atlanta, um, it wasn't that it wasn't out of the way to make a point and, of going by and seeing Ole, uh, I think in Athens. And so, you know, I called ahead of time and, and, uh, Marcia told me that he, he's a creature of habit. And there was a place that he liked to go to every day and, and for lunch that had a buffet that was very much to his liking, told me where it was and what time Ole would get there every day. And that's where I went and, hmm. uh, and sat down with him and God and had a great lunch. And then, they were used to being only being there, and and so we sat there probably for two hours after after that, just having conversation. And uh, I mean, I could talk to 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 Oli forever just because he's got such a great mind. It is funny, like how he kind of it's weird away from TV and away from the cameras. He doesn't fit the group, but when you put him on TV, it's like he fits the group perfectly, and he was awesome for the group. And he was kind of the enforcer before Arn became the enforcer of the group. So it was really kind of a, a cool dynamic with those four. And then throw you, obviously, in there as well. Yeah. Isn't that crazy, though? Away from TV, not doesn't fit the group. On TV, yeah. fits the, like a glove. Well, really, but if you also think about Flair used to talk about the 
the limousine riding, high flying, jet jet flying, kiss stealing son of a gun. When Flair was doing interviews like that, you know, I could say there with a little smirk on my face and Tully would be, but it didn't fit Ole. And mm-hmm. so you didn't see Ole in that scenario very often because that wasn't Ole. Yeah, it it, it didn't fit him. And nope. obviously that's it fit Flair perfectly. What was your relationship like with the nature boy? He, we've been friends for a long time. First time I met him, you know, the, this was back before the internet, before cable television, and I was uh, I was still active in my career, and I was in Amarillo, and I was a main eventer down there, and Flair was uh, just getting started in the Carolinas and had just set the place on fire, and George Scott uh, apparently saw the potential, and it's like... Uh, if you see a guy that you think has the ability to be to, to be a future world champion, you need to get him out of that territory and, and you know, have him go to St. Louis, have him go here. So he booked Flair out so that uh, other territories would, would be exposed to him. So he came to Amarillo for a week and I was working there and I, he rode, with, I had him ride with me every day. And he, he just right from the very beginning, he was somebody that I just enjoyed being around and just fascinated by um, how successful he'd been become in such a short period of time. You think he is the the glue or, or the mix or whatever you want to say, the, the glue guy of the horseman, like the horseman doesn't exist without Flair? Yeah, probably so. And uh, the thing about this profession is so much is spontaneous. If somebody said, oh, we... We should get a group, and, and uh, I think four guys is about the right number, and we need to give them a catchy name, you know, called the Poor Horseman, and we could get this guy and this. Things like that don't happen because the ultimate judge and jury is the wrestling fan. And if you spend a lot of time and effort with a conceptual idea like that that you want to try and take, and I'm going to make the, I'm, the people are going to believe in this because I'm going to shove it down their throat. That's when you get the most resistance and something that the fans least can relate to. And yet when you got the group of guys that come together that have a chemistry between them, that translates through the television to the fans in a way that, that if, if, we, if we had an understanding of what that was and how it happened, people like me would be extremely wealthy today because, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I've got this concept and here's the guys and this is the idea because you could do 10 things like that and 10 things would go one time out there and the fans would be blowing their nose at it. And yet you have something out there with four guys and it's, it's like with Jimmy Crockett, uh, Arn used the thing on the interview, say, look, look, look at the, look at the screen. I can remember that interview as if it was today and it's over 30 some years ago where he said, take a look at your screen. And he said, never in the history of our profession uh, have four individuals so dominated the industry. And he said, you got to go out of wrestling to try and find uh, something comparable. And he said, I have to go to my history book to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and held up four fingers. And there was a throwaway line just because Arn, that's how he, he his interviews were different. He, he would 
bring in a thought like that that you would think, oh, you'd never hear that in a wrestling interview. And that night we went to the arena, and I remember we went to Greensboro, and the fans were yelling, four horsemen and holding up the four fingers. And they are the ones that then took that seed at that moment that was planted by Arn Anderson, and it's become... God, it's become huge, and just I'm so thankful that I was there at that time and, and a part of it. As far as you and kind of being the mix with those guys and and just really kind of being the perfect fit, like I always talk to Telly, and he always says, you know, J.J. never tries to do too much, or J.J. never tries to overpower, or J.J. knows just when to say the right thing or do the right thing. Is that a, a conscious effort to not, overshadow those guys or is it just one of those things where it's like you guys had such good chemistry you knew each other so well each knew exactly what to do and when to do it yeah it was something that uh that i just worked instinctively and always had it and 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 i was blessed with this ability i guess to understand the moment understand the people that i was surrounded with and it was like I remember an interview that I did with Luger. And Luger uh, thought that he was the greatest interview of all times. And Lex, Lex was okay. He wasn't. And I managed him <laughs> one time. And I remember he was doing an interview. And, and I never said a word. But I was right next to him. And when I watched the interview play, Luger, <laughs> Luger would talk. And if you're having a conversation and you make a point, you might, you might, you know, make a hand motion or something. And he would be talking and he would go, uh, at a point when it meant absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, hmm. and I was, was next to him and without saying a word and without distraction from what distracting from what he was saying, it's like you say, I'd be watching and I remove my glasses and, and, and kind of like just, you know, sometimes just touching my finger to my cheek, and a lot of times I'd be taught, and I would just cut my eyes over where you would see that I was looking at him without turning my head, and and so that I didn't take I. It's like I was tuned in to everything that he was saying, and and reacting to it in a subtle way, without stealing the moment from him because he was the one doing the interview. And it's and my logic always was well, if I'm just standing there like a dummy in there, and or I'm looking out like my mind is somewhere else, and I'm thinking about where we're going that night or where I'm going to have dinner, and my eyes are wandering, and and I'm not paying attention to him. My logic always was well, if somebody's sitting at home or sitting in the arena, and sees me, not even though I'm not speaking, not being attentive to what the interview is being saying. How can I expect the person sitting out there that bought a ticket or watching on television to be interested in it if I'm not interested? And I, I consciously never got that thought out of my mind that I, I never wanted to overreact, that I became the focal of a, focus of attention to take away from the person that was doing the interview. But what I did was I tried to compliment it and to show interest in what was being said and you could do it in so many subtle ways just with an eye glance or 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 kind of cocking your head that way 
Or uh, a lot of times you can put your head down and just rub your forehead. And then all of a sudden he makes a point and you look up and you're kind of nodding. Yes. So you, you, I had great success of doing those things subtly that looked very spontaneous, but it was something that I worked at very hard. And with you guys and the four horsemen, I think that's the perfect thing. Everyone complimented each other so well, especially that original group. Just such a great compliment. One guy complimented the other. And it was all kind of about making sure, you know, that either tag champs, national champ, uh, TV champ, obviously Flair being a world champ. It was always you guys wanted to maintain the excellence, wanted to maintain being champions, always maybe about Flair making sure he could stay on top. Yep. I think and the reason was the, the reason was everybody – had confidence in their own ability and the role that they played as part of that group. It wasn't like, you know, there were, uh, and that's, that's a sad thing about, there were a lot of managers that would do things around ringside, almost like I've got to do something to justify why I'm even out here. Or maybe the promoter would say, well, business gets a little tough and I, I got to cut back, you know, you know, do I really need that manager? So a lot of them would have the thing, well, I got to be out there doing something. So the promoter always sees me and, uh, I got to, you know, condition his thinking that, that I'm an important ingredient of what's, of what's going on here. And I never, that, that never, never entered my thought process. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had had a very successful in ring career. And so that was an ability that I possessed that if it, it eventually came to a deal where, Oh, the, you know, you do something and, and they want you to be in the ring with tights on and Oh no, 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 no. And finally the powers to be force you and it happens. And then I learned that from uh, Bobby Heenan, that there is an art to wrestling like a manager. And boy, is that so important? Because there's an expectation that if you go out there as a wrestler and you're very polished and your timing is right there, they don't necessarily, the fans think about it at that moment, but if they think about it after, it's like, mm. that's not why I, th I thought the manager would be, look more uncomfortable and, and not be smooth and not be polished. So that was the Bobby Heenan teaching me to wrestle and work like like a manager not a wrestler that is such a great point and you gotta love the brain on that one oh, yeah. as, as far as like the horseman itself it just seemed like perfect foils for dusty roads perfect foils for guys like road warriors magnum ta nikita Kolov. like just the perfect foils is that kind of a, a reason for dusty given the big push it's like man not really the reason obviously money uh uh, them being so well, you guys being over, but was that just perfect for Dusty to have you guys as the foil? Uh, I, I think so. Because if you take a, say, let's say an Abdullah the Butcher. Abdullah the Butcher is a monster, goes out there, and the first time that he's defeated, um, a lot of the mystique is taken off of him. Mm -hmm. yep. we, we had the ability of going out there every week <laughs> and getting our butts kicked and then going on television 
and given our version of what happened where we, <laughs> yep. we, you know, we were, oh, we were mistreated and what you see is not really what it was. And all of a sudden fans were more angry because I was there and saw it. What you're lying. What are you talking? You know, what, you want me to buy your story and people would get more angry because you're given your version of a scenario where you were out there and got your butt kicked. And as a result, the fans would say, well, I hope he gets him back there in the ring and he gets a, takes a beating twice what he took last time. And that's a lost art to be able to do that. You go out there and give the fans what they paid to see, but not give them the whole, don't give them the whole pie, save some, and be able to go on TV and then lie about what happened and give your version of the story and just enrage the people that say, what? I was there and <laughs> saw you get your butt kicked. You're not the wrestler that he was. He's far better than you are, but apparently you need to get you back in there and beat you up worse than you were when I saw you. That's a lost art. It really, really is. Flair, Arn, and Tully are the masters of that. I mean, cutting the promo, taking great bumps, great selling, getting their ass kicked, and then the fans hate them even more. They want them to get them back. That's, I mean, that's that's why Dusty liked working with those guys. It's got to yep. be. I mean, so like the perfect guys to kind of you know be almost the Joker to the Batman. If there's not that yeah. good villain, the good guy isn't that good, right? I mean, it's like the perfect um, combination. And we were all friends. We were all friends. And like whether it was an interview or even a match, there were times where one one guy would start a match and be out there for 20 minutes, and the guy would be in the ring 18 minutes. And you'd come in and maybe you end up dropping the fall. Well, if you work the apron the right way for those 18 minutes, you're still part of the match. And that is a, a, an element of talent that is lost in many ways with the business today. To be able to be the guy on the outside that still is an important part of what's taking place. I love that when you did get physically involved, it really meant something. Like when they put you in war game stuff, obviously this is later on, but they put you in war game and stuff. I mean, you get hurt for real, but when yeah. they put you in there, the crowd despises you. I mean, they, they literally want to kill you. They love it. It was like, almost like you wait for the manager to get beat up. Am I right on this? It's like, it's yeah. got to be a certain we're on, timing aspect. We're on Skype, right? Well, yes. You see it? Yep. That's a big oh yeah, shoulders all oh god, up. Yeah. oh yeah, yeah. That's that. I every morning when I get up, there it is. I have a hump where that I I went I you know was went to the hospital that night, and they said, well, you would need surgery for us to repair that, and the other option is to you'll be in a sling for six weeks, but you're going to have this hump up there. And I thought, well, I <laughs> I wasn't somebody that was wanting to go to the beach and. Uh, and uh, try to impress any of the young ladies because I wasn't a, a, a gym rat anyway. So I I never had uh, – it's maybe my bad badge of courage that I still, after 30-some years later, look in the mirror and say, eh, I don't have any pain from it. It looks it looks gr grotesque, but it's uh, – and it doesn't really affect my ability or range of motion, but it certainly doesn't look very pretty. I love – you know, that you got involved, it obviously sucks you, you get injured in a match like that. But as far as, as the like the original group, the original horsemen, talking about Ole Anderson, Arn Anderson, Telly Blanchard, Flair, and yourself, is that kind of the group when you think about the four horsemen? Is that the, the original 
Tunnel is, is the best, and that's that's what you got to stick with, or, or you think there's another group that was better, or, or is that the four? That's your favorite. Well, what what the were best. the names again? The original, Ole Arn, yourself, obviously Rick and Tully. Yeah, and and the thing with Ole, he wasn't there that long, and again, the Flair, a lot of times, you know, set the tone for the interview with the limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, son of a gun. You know, I could have a little smirk on my face and tell he's standing there. Yeah, he kind of factored himself to be a ladies' man. And hmm. you looked at Ole and said, ah, what's he doing out there? This is, can't apply to him. And he would just keep a straight face. And, and so, but I also look at Ole as he was the original. And if it hadn't been for Ole, then maybe none of the other things that followed would have gone the, the way that they did. So Ole was an original horseman, and he was as good as they get. He's a, a great talent, and he, he was somebody in the business that uh, a lot of people didn't like him because he wasn't political. He would tell you exactly how he felt and didn't sugarcoat it. And a lot of guys didn't like that about him. But I always got along with him and traveled with him and regard him as a, as a friend to this day. And I'm, I'm, I'm a very private person. I, I don't make regular phone calls to, to the guys. And when I am somewhere and get to see them, well, I, you know, I, I savor those, those moments. And a lot of people say, you know, the, the, you know, older fans, of course, the Andersons, you know, Gene Anderson, even you know, Lars Anderson to a point, mm-hmm. but really Gene and Ole kind of were the precursor to the horsemen. Obviously, Arn is a cousin oh, who becomes a brother. So, you know, they were really the precursor to the four horsemen in a certain way. And when you think about it, how many things in wrestling can you go and say, well, this all started 30 some years ago mm. and and is still perpetuated today? I still... Uh, get booked for appearances to to go to uh fan fests or we'll, we'll go to independent shows and they bring me for half hour or 45 minutes before the show starts or that plus intermission to be there and be available for photo ops and just to sign stuff and uh it's it's god i'm so blessed that that like you say 30 some years later that there's a huge base of fans out there that the horsemen are just at a level that, that I, I, I knock on wood that hopefully will never be forgotten. And it's because we were the right place, the right time with the right group. And we worked hard every night in every town. And that's one thing about flair that he will go down as, as a great champion and maybe the greatest champion of all time. Because a lot of people at his level would go, and if, uh, if, there's, if there's eight or 10,000 people there, they go out there and give it all. And I've been to an arena that whether, was, whether the TV, the local TV got preempted, and we get to the arena with the anticipation that we're going to have a really big crowd, and there's four or 500 people there, maybe 300 people there. And there are guys who would say, well, I'm not going to go out and risk maybe getting hurt or, give, you know, and, and, and we'll unconsciously go out there and give a half a performance. Ric Flair will give you the same performance if there are 20 people out there 
or if there were 20,000 people out there. And that's why history will show him to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest champion of all time, because that was his work ethic. And, and the guys that were around him, I, I, I think I, I do adopt that same philosophy. I go out there and I look at the people that are there, whether it's 20 people or 20,000, each of those people spent their hard-earned money to buy a ticket with an expectation from you. And if you go there and don't perform at the level that they anticipate because there aren't as many people there as they expected or whatever, then you've, you've, you've cheated those people that bought that ticket with an anticipation. And you've cheated yourself because I was a fan when it started and I, w I went out there and uh, so I never forgot that part of the business that I go out there and with the same level, I don't want to go out there and get hurt. And I'm not saying that I take shortcuts because I don't, but I like to, I take pride in the fact that, that my performance level every night that I'm anywhere is the same, regardless of how many people that are there. And, and because of that, more often than not, there's more people because that is uh, the work ethic that I subscribe uh, to as do the horsemen. And that's why 30 years later, they still talk about the four horsemen because they know any time that they came to see us that they were going to see what they anticipated when they bought that ticket. Four horsemen, definitely the greatest faction of all time in your, in your view. Nobody better. Absolutely. For me, uh, maybe a little prejudice, but yeah. Yep. And Gary Hart had, had Hart's army with Pax Long Nam. And, but, but the four horsemen was something that, uh, again, uh, Arn threw that line out there and the fans picked up on it. So it was really something that they created. And then it just per perpetuated, perpetuated. And I think sometimes, wow, that, you know, that's 30 some years later, 88, 98, 08, 18. It's, it, it, it's, it's 30 plus years later. And we had to do something right that they still remember and still want to go out. And, and, uh, you know, even though we, you know, we don't look the same as we did 30 years ago or perform at the same level. Um, they have memories, you know, and I'll go and, and, uh, you know, do a signing or something. And I can't count the number of times that a man will come up and have his maybe nine, 10 year old son with him. And the, the boy looks at his father and his father's eyes are like this. And he's just got this smile on his face that maybe it, he's watched you all these years and, it, and he's actually meeting you in person for the, for the first time. And the, the, the son may be more in awe of, or would be more in awe of who he's seeing on the current uh, television wrestling show. And the father will stand there and say, well, when I was your age, I had stars in my eyes uh, like you do for The Rock or whatever, whoever it would be, or John Cena. And I came and my father brought me and I saw him then. And I still remember, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's fond memories for me. And that, you know, there's like times when I think, ah, oh, you know, what did I really accomplish in life? Yeah, I was a professional wrestler and I had got over 3,000 matches. And, and now here I am 30 years later, they want, want to uh, 
pay for my plane ticket and put me up in a hotel and give me compensation to come to their event, to sit there, and that there are people that are coming also to see the event, but then there's an added value of knowing that you're there and they maybe want to sign picture or take a picture with you. That's that's a good feeling. And it's like, you know, maybe I really did accomplish something. That uh, Just hearing them say the memories that they have means that that uh, there's a moment in time where I brought a joy into their life. And that's really what it's all about. 100%. I totally agree. And I think this is would be a, a great stopping point as far as just the original Horseman. I think on future episodes, definitely touch on when Luger joins the group or when Wyndham joins the group. And even you leaving the Horseman and leaving the NWA. And, and we'll definitely touch on all those things. I just think that this is a good stopping point as far as talking about the original Horseman, and now for some plugs, a new pro wrestling tea store has been set up. So go to prowrestlingtees.com and check out JJ Dillon's new store. Also, a Patreon page has been set up where you be- can become a patron and support the show. So that is patreon.com/slash JJ Dillon. Also, please check out JJ's website, jjdillon.com. And I highly recommend you buy the book "Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls from McMahon to McMahon." Also, you can email questions and comments to a JJ Dillon podcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is a JJ Dillon podcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and check out the website tmptempire.com. JJ, it is always awesome talking to you. And I love the fact <laughs> that we can talk about the four horsemen, of course. Yeah, and two-man power trip. Thank you for having me as a guest. And uh, and thank you to all the fans who uh, who, who have uh, hopefully sat and listened to what I have to say. And Because uh, I could talk wrestling forever. And you fans, like I said earlier, are the people that I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if if you didn't you had a choice of where to spend your hard-earned money and for you to come uh and buy a ticket to a live event where i participated one thing that i can guarantee you that anytime i was ever there you got 100 percent out of me i never took it for granted and um and i'm just i'm humbled that 30 some years later that some of you still remember me and want to hear what I had to say or if I'm at a, a, a live event somewhere we'll take the time to come by and introduce yourself and say hello alright awesome and of course we hope all the fans join us again next week for JJ the JJ Dillon podcast this podcast was a presentation of the two man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire <laughs>